0: I've got to say, though, that every time I'm sitting down hearing someone else preach, I'm just going, oh, I want to be up there. I'm glad to be back and be in the pulpit this evening. And I hope that by God's grace, he will continue to teach us from his word this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I, the preacher, or Kohelet, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, or you'll remember mist, or vapor, and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Although we come to you and we ask as a people who are naturally unwise and unrighteous, that you might grant to us that good gift that comes from your spirit, not just a wisdom a curiosity, but a spirit-wrought sight of those things that are eternal and ever-true. And that you might, by your word, make in us leaves that are evergreen, as we are planted by the one who is the river of life, even Christ himself. And it is in his name we ask all of these things. Amen. As we move through this book, I want us to remember to stay positive, (laughs) and this isn't just an American ideal. This is my desire to have us understand that what Solomon is doing is he is bringing us across the hard principles of life that are ultimately reconciled and redeemed in the work of Jesus Christ. Solomon, at times, is brutal, is abrupt, He seems to paint a picture for us that would absolutely seem desperate if we were not able to read this book with an eye to redemption. Even Solomon believed in the Redeemer that was to come and a life of redemption for those who fear God and keep His commands. And so as we read the book of Ecclesiastes, let us always remember that what Solomon is painting for us is a biblical worldview of life under the weight of sin. I sent out one of those little summaries, as I do each week of each sermon, and there I quoted from Leland Riken as he's speaking in his own commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says, the theme of the book, far from being a problem, is a virtual summary of the biblical worldview. Life lived by purely earthly and human standards is futile. It's the wrong kind of vanity. But God-centered life is an antidote. Ecclesiastes helps that from becoming a cliche. And Solomon wishes for us to know what it means to be one who lives life in light of eternity. Now here is what I cannot stop thinking about when I read the book of Ecclesiastes. And I, I've tried to not use many examples from pop culture, but if y'all have seen the movie WALL-E, I can't think of a better example of the book of Ecclesiastes. WALL-E opens with this robot who's programmed to do one thing, and that is collect garbage, bring it into his body, make it into a cube, and then stack those cubes over And over again. And there is this persistent, now I know he's a robot, but it is a movie. And so he's more than a robot. He is a character that is meant to represent the ideal. And that is the ideal of contentment with a regular, monotonous life. How do you take joy in stacking trash? I think I emptied the trash three times today. How do you take joy in stacking trash? And then when Wally finally encounters humans, whew, it's not an encouraging picture. Wally is transported aboard this space station uh, by way of a series of sort of accidents that take him up into this rocket where humans now live on this imman- just this immense spaceship. And they're sitting in rascal electric scooters that float and they're watching television that's right in front of their faces, and they're drinking what has to be some kind of high-caloric soda, and they can't even walk. They have grown so accustomed to amusement and entertainment, they have lost the ability to even understand what work is. And of course, Wally, like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, comes in and disrupts their lives. That is what Ecclesiastes is for a sedentary Western world. Oh no, Solomon has come to tell me the way things really are. And that is what we need to learn from the book of Ecclesiastes. And so he moves us through this wonderful letter, and I want to take these next seven verses, verses 12 through 18, under these headings. It's a little bit... I changed things around a little bit so they're not listed in your bulletin properly. Roman numeral one is the issue. And then I bumped Roman numeral one down to number two, one man's search for meaning. Number one, the issue. And number two, one man's search for meaning. Now, what is the issue? What is the problem? Well, here is the problem, in essence, that Solomon has addressed already in verses 1 through 11. We have no real power over creation. What is expressed is that there is is a domain in which men exercise authority and that authority goes no further. Even if we were to explore the furthest reaches of this galaxy or even to another galaxy, we would still be within the fishbowl that is God's created order. We cannot escape it. And so all of this life, Solomon calls life under the sun. And so what he's doing in verses one through 11 is confronting the pride of men by putting them in their proper place. I'm talking about the type A control freaks. You know who I'm talking about? The OCD people. Everything has to be in its place. And if it is not, then I'm going to lose it. Not just over the little things what we might call the anxious biddies that talk, and they're constantly complaining about this or that. But philosophical humanism. So not just anxiety on a personal existential level, but corporate dealings with anxiety that have become the, the sort of sophisticated removal of God as judge that all men are very much aware of from their lives. And so they create A life for themselves that cannot be sustained. And despite their efforts, revelation is constantly going on the door of their hearts. No, that's not working. One pastor puts it this way, an unbeliever is like someone who is in a swimming pool and he has his or her hands down in the water holding the beach ball under the water that is the reality of God's being and call to be worshiped which is fun, because if you enter into the realm of apologetics, I use this in my class, you're just going up to them and you're kind of poking their arms, trying to get them to release the beach ball as it floats up, and then they are confronted with the truth of God's revelation. That's what man is doing all the time. And they're tired from this, trying to keep the beach ball beneath the surface. And one of the things that men tell themselves is, I have real power. Well, I know many of you probably lived through one great hurricane that came through this area a couple of decades ago. I remember speaking with someone in Thailand when that tsunami hit the West Coast. He was a diving instructor, and because he was a diving instructor, he was uniquely prepared, because one moment he was asleep, the next moment he was 40 feet underwater. And he swam to the surface It took about a minute and a half to move through the garbage just to get to the surface. One minute you're asleep, the next minute you're underwater. Man has some power. Man can build panels that capture sunlight. Man can build these enormous um, windmills that harness the wind, but what if the wind stops blowing? What if the clouds cover the sun... In fact, in some way, this is what God is teaching the Egyptians in the book of Exodus and also the Israelites. Men, in their unsophistic nature, of course, these ancient Egyptians worshipped creation, but we don't do that anymore, do we? We don't worship creation at all in the 21st century in the West. Of course we do. We are as equally obsessed with creation or nature, as it is often referred to, to the point that we have sort of entered into this frenzy of pagan fear that creation, that nature is out for us, and she is coming for us. We've even attributed to her a personal quality. Well, what God teaches Egypt and Israel is that he is Lord over all of those things. Man is not. Man actually has no real power over creation, and not only that, but we have no real leverage over our generations. We've sung recently in our worship, not today, but a couple of Sundays ago, that the wealthy, even though they amass all of this fortune on the day of their death, it stays in this life. They cannot take it with them. And they cannot appeal to the majesty of God and say, I'm rich. I've got 600,000 followers on YouTube. Can I sell you something, God? God isn't impressed by those people. None of their influence counts anything, not only before God, but even before us. For as soon as they arise, they are gone. The 15 minutes of fame is a real principle. It may be longer than 15 minutes. You may enjoy a lifetime of celebrity. But the cycles of nature... And the unending generations of men present a problem. And so we are ever seeking to escape so that we may not believe about our lives. My life isn't mist. My life isn't vapor. But it still is. Because the power and the purpose that men have is ultimately tethered to our creatureliness and, as we'll see in a moment, our sinfulness. Now, David Hubbard, writing in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, says, Hebel, remember, mist, vapor, like when you blow on a a window and that, that vapor appears and then it quickly fades. Hebel stands more for human inability to grasp the meaning of God's way than for an ultimate emptiness in life. It speaks of human limitation and frustration caused by the vast gap between God's knowledge and power and our relative ignorance and impotence. The deepest issues of lasting profit, of enlightening wisdom, of ability to change life's workings, of confidence that we have grasped the highest happiness, all of these are beyond our reach in Kohelet's view. They're beyond our reach. So long as we seek those things that are under the sun, or happiness, satisfaction, ultimate meaning, under the sun. Whether it's an idol of family, an obsession with a a boy, or a girl, or a spouse, or a job, or a possession. If I get that thing, I will be happy. And as soon as you get that thing, you see someone drive by with the next trim level up, and you go, wait, no, 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 that It is an insatiable appetite. And so, this search for satisfaction can never be satisfied if we are looking to the stuff of earth. Whatever we are, we are limited creatures with limited efforts and limited scope. There is nothing new because as much as we improve, we cannot rise above the limitations imposed upon us by our Creator. And by, excuse me. And by the fact that we can never be anything other than creatures and so we are limited by our being. The fancy word for this is our ontology. We're creatures, we're humans. We are limited in our actions or our efforts. We are creatures and it is inescapable. There is only so much that we can do and even wisdom itself is good. But what does Kohelet say here? Ultimately, it cannot save. In fact, what wisdom does is it turns up the light. It sets the dimmer switch to 100% on the way things really are. You've heard the phrase, knowledge is power? No. Knowledge is a burden. Knowledge is a burden. You've heard it said, you don't want to know how the hot dogs are made. Why? (laughs) Because you would never eat another hot dog again. Knowledge is a burden. And the more you know, the more acquainted you are with your own frailty, your own humanity, your own inability to actually have any effect on anything. And yes, I do want to drive you to a place where you come to the end of your tether and you realize... What is it good for? All of these books. All of this knowledge. In fact, what Solomon is doing in verses 12 through 18 is he is taking us on a biographical journey to the end of the tether so that he might communicate to us where true satisfaction, where Hebel can be redeemed. Children, I want you to listen. Your parents have made mistakes. And just because your parents made mistakes does not mean it's okay for you to make those same mistakes. In fact, what your parents will often do is they will plead with you, I know what it's like to do that and to experience the repercussions of it. Please, do not walk in that direction. Well, Dad, you did it, and I'm like, yes, Yes, but let's apply that logic to anything else and let's just see how substantial that is, right? I played in traffic. Well, Dad, if you played in traffic, then I should be allowed. Okay, go for it. What we are endeavoring to do is learn from a man who went there and not only went there in terms of that which is wicked, but also went on a journey of discovery, and in this journey, he has something to tell us. And that leads me to my second point. One man's search for meaning. Now, there is a little bit of precedent for this in Scripture. When God made Adam, he put him in a garden. And what Adam was doing in the beginning was naming. He was classifying. He was ordering. He was giving the creation greater beauty... And bringing order from chaos, not sinful chaos, but giving Adam a mission. Adam had this mission, and that mission was to go into creation and begin to classify. That's a giraffe. He didn't use the word giraffe, but I'm going to say giraffe. That's a hippopotamus. Or whatever he saw, he began to name things according to the mind and the intellect and the wisdom that were given to him as a man made in the image of God. And when he went out and he saw all of these things, he came back and he realized, I can't do this alone. And there is not one creature out there who can help me that is like me. And so God said what? It is not good for man to be alone. Now let me ask you this question. Did God know what was good for Adam? And if God knew what was good for Adam, why didn't He give him a wife in the first place? Because He wanted Adam to learn what was good for Adam. Not that Adam was sinful, but he was incomplete in his knowledge. And how much more glorious the gift when you understand your need for it, your completion through it, than just to simply be given it and never having lived without it. What Solomon is doing is he is taking us through the steps so that we might see with clearer sight exactly what his biographical journey in understanding what Hebel and wisdom and the relationship of those things are so that we might learn better. So what did he do? I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. There is his mission statement. I'm going out and I am endeavoring to understand the way things are. And so Solomon, like any scientist, would go out and he'd pick up a leaf. And he'd look at that leaf and he'd look at the tree. And he'd learn the relationship between that leaf and that tree. Or he'd go out and he'd see the people working. And he would understand how sort of irrigation systems work. And as he goes out into creation, guess what he learns? Kind of stinks. It's tough. As soon as you plant, You have to wait, and then you harvest. Well, guess what happens? You have to plant again, and then you wait for harvest. And sometimes that seed that you plant doesn't come up, which is why you plant many seeds, because many of the seeds that go into the ground are stillborn. They don't bear fruit. They don't bring forth life. It is, as he says, an unhappy business. It is wearisome. It is tiresome. It is difficult. It is fraught with sorrow. Boy, we hate hearing that. Because we'll say, well, just keep a stiff upper lip, chap. Well, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Because God's supreme will for your life is that you never know sorrow or discomfort. What? Right? That's what we want to hear. Even when I was taught how to share the gospel, one of the laws that we were given is this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is so contrary to the book of Ecclesiastes. I can't think of anything more bait and switch than that. Now there is wonder in it, but sometimes the wonder is through the mist. It's through the vapor. Or, the wonder is the vapor. It is, in fact, the shifting of perspective. But when you go to an unbeliever and you say, he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, what are you hearing? Oh, you mean like winning the lottery? No, it's the opposite of winning the lottery. In fact, to know, to be given the knowledge, the true knowledge of your sin. In fact, that's the great evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, isn't it? When you, boom, the lights, the dimmer switch is set to 100% and you see yourself as you truly are for the first time and you say, man, I really am good. No, you say, I am a sinner, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Solomon looks at it all and says, you know, there's some good stuff, but boy, is it hard He's seen it all, verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is mist, all is vapor, and a striving after the wind. Now, our dog, as she ages, goes through these different phases where she is obsessed with different things. And right now, it's light. I don't know if you know this, but in the winter, the sun tilts a little differently. And so you get a lot of sunlight pouring in through the windows, And every time your watch or your phone or something shiny like an object in the kitchen catches the sunlight, it shines on the ceiling, and Bodhi goes for it, just all out. And so she's constantly, you know, I'll get my watch or I'll get my phone, and it's just so mean. It's like, you know, when you play with a cat and the laser. And I'll shine it on the walls, and she's just hitting the wall, hitting the wall. Is she going to catch the light? Will she catch the light? We laugh. Whenever we record her, you can hear Logan in the background doing that very thing. <laughs> Nobody can stop laughing, in fact. It's impossible because it's just so silly. How much entertainment, if it weren't so sad, is given to God by our chasing after things that will never, ever bring us satisfaction or can ever be caught? We're just sort of jumping, going everywhere, hoping to grab it. It's chasing after the wind. Now, what is his intention? As he is writing, this is what Robert Johnston, a, a commentator of sorts or a biblical scholar, says, Cohelet's intent in his writing is to pass judgment on man's misguided endeavors at mastering life by pointing out its limits and mysteries. He would prefer that man replace such false and illusory hopes with a confidence based on the joy of creation as God's gift. A gift. Not God, but the gift of God. And so Kohelet, Solomon, goes out and he sees all of these things. And he sees it as dogs chasing shadows and light. Because there is another problem. Look at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is he talking about? He's not just talking about the smallness, the minute, imperceptible efforts of men. He's talking about the sin of men, the corruption of men, The crookedness that afflicts us because of the curse of God. That's what he sees. Oh, I see it. Here is the problem. The great affliction of men is not only that our lives are impermanent, but our lives, even though they are impermanent, are also, also crooked. Vanity can then be a dead end. It can be the root of great frustration and sorrow and desperation and burden. Because the crook that God has put into the lot of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived is one in which we who are creatures under the fall seek to find the meaning apart from God and we are grasping at straws. And we grow frustrated, don't we? by our own inability to change anything for any permanence whatsoever. And so when you look at the world around you, and they're dealing with Hebel, and they're dealing with the impermanence of their lives and their own sin, you are looking at a people that are constantly just frustrated. You're frustrated, aren't you? And you know better. I know better. And so whatever we are, we're not merely limited in our creatureliness, but we are broken under the fall. And so our striving is not just tethered to humanity, our creatureliness, but our sinful estate. And so there is no one that can escape it. Not knowledge, not wisdom, not more of the stuff of earth. What does he say? I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. Where did it come from? Some of it was supernatural. Solomon ate of the tree of knowledge, in essence. And all who were over Jerusalem before me. So it's not just Solomon. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this, even this, is but a striving after the wind. More knowledge... More wisdom. It is not power. It does not create permanent. It creates what? Vexation and sorrow. Now what he's not talking about is a kind of sadism. A kind of obsession with sorrow. He didn't listen to the Smiths or, you know, they weren't around then and these kind of melancholy bands that existed in the 80s, the cure. Solomon saw life, and he saw in it trial, trouble. And I think if you were to look, you would see the same thing. And this is why many say, well, Solomon's just got a bad attitude. He's just seeing things as they are. The problem with many of us is that we're naive. We push death off into a corner. How many of you have seen, and some of you probably have, the life go out of another human? Something horrific happened to another person. And oftentimes, even those who are in times of war are not even prepared by their own faith to handle the realities of life. And there is a schism, a disconnect between their heart and their mind because they think, and rightly so, this ought not to be the way it is, but it is and it's because of the curse god's curse and wrath and judgment poured out on sinners and so as solomon is looking around we are learning from something we are learning something from him in the manner that adam learned something we are learning from one who knew who allows us to look at the world the way it is and then gives us the information that unlocks the desire and longing of our hearts and here it is what it is Solomon looked at the stuff of earth, and he said, you've read the book, You're Not My Mother. This isn't it. This is not it. Instead, what are we to do? Not look to the stuff of earth that will grow strangely dim, but we are to look up. We are to look at the Maker and the Redeemer. And so when I say up, I mean you must look at the one who sits enthroned above the earth. David's son and David's Lord. The one who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth. The one who is not only the creator of all things, but the redeemer. And where do you find him? Well, you see him in creation, right? Paul says that in Romans 1. We see the contours, the broad brushstrokes of the glory and the majesty of God, but we do not see Christ there as redeemer. And so what must we do? We must trace in Scripture the plan of redemption that consummates or is consummated in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is there that we find the way out of mist and vapor. You must look to the cross of Jesus Christ. All of creation and the whole Testimony of Scripture proclaims to the searcher, seek not meaning in the mere stuff of earth. It's not even in the search. This has become the thing, right? There is now this sort of Western or Eastern Stoicism that has crept into the West and into the church. It is in seeking that we are found. What does that even mean? You just haven't made your mind up and you want everybody to be excited about the fact that you're an agnostic. No! The only hope is that we are found by Christ, that we are redeemed, and that we seek all wisdom and knowledge for the glory and wisdom and knowledge of God are bound up in whom? Christ Jesus. He is the eternal Logos. And I think this unlocks for us even that parable of the pearl of great price when that man buys a field and he finds that great treasure and he sells everything he has just so he might have the treasure. We are to be those who seek value, who understand that wisdom and purpose and permanence does not come by those that are mist dwellers or but shadow, who have no weight but the one who is weighty, Christ himself. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do it.